Welcome to Eurasia Chat, a bi-weekly discussion of the hottest topics in Central Asia, with your hosts Alisher Hamidov and Agirin Toruhanova. So this week we are going to discuss a lot of topics, and I wanted to start with an update on Rilakanti, Russian Rilakanti, in Central Asia. Alisher, I've been reading in some English-speaking media outlets and in Russian news outlets that a lot of Russians are now getting Kyrgyz passports. Some of them are businessmen, former finance people. Some of them are even wanted. What's going on there? Yeah, I agree. The thing is, uh, we are here in Bishkek are quite surprised uh, to read the news that Russian citizens are receiving Kyrgyz passports. The thing is, before issuing citizenship, Kyrgyzstan normally uh, gives out uh, permanent residencies or the right to live as a, as a resident in Kyrgyzstan. And after five years, people can apply for citizenship. So I've been reading the news that some Russian prominent uh, business people and uh, artists received Kyrgyz citizenship uh, in a kind of expedited manner. I was surprised, uh, honestly, because there are hundreds and hundreds of people who want to become citizens of Kyrgyzstan. And usually the uh, procedures are so complicated. So, And Kyrgyz president personally has to sign a decree granting citizenship for each individual applying for citizenship. So it's really surprising. We haven't seen much news on the Kyrgyz side. Perhaps the authorities are trying to block this information in order not to cause some public discontent. I don't know. So, Aigirim, could you tell us more about who exactly uh, received Kyrgyz citizenship from your sources or from what you read? I've just read some news. Actually, this was a Kyrgyz news website in which um, they said that they actually cited the Moscow Times saying that a number of quite prominent Russian citizens who recently got the citizenship of Kyrgyzstan. And there is also one financier who openly kind of wrote about his friendship with a local financial elite of Kyrgyzstan and that he helped uh, these Russian citizens get the citizenship of Kyrgyzstan. And I've been quite surprised as well. We see that uh, some financiers, Russian financiers, received citizenship, but that information needs to be verified. So we have not seen any verification or evidence on the Kyrgyz side that these people received passports through this fast-track uh, approach. In fact, Kyrgyz legislation does not provide a fast track to citizenship, unless, I guess, you can buy it So somehow. What we also know is that there's a lot of Russians still coming to Central Asian cities, and they are buying property. So instead of renting now, here in Bishkek, the trend is that they are investing uh, in small apartments or houses because they know that uh, they will stay here for a few more years or maybe a decade because there's no clarity regarding the uh, conclusion of the war, grains. So they are planning to stay here longer, the Relekanti. Yeah, I think that's uh, also the case in Kazakhstan. At least some of them are opening their businesses, small businesses like pubs, I don't know, some other uh, service-related stuff. And um, I've heard that there might be another wave of uh, Russian Relekanti those who didn't have enough savings in the first waves and now they have some savings to move. But the question, Igurim, is how are 
the views of ordinary Kazakh people changing over time regarding Relakanti, their opinions about Relakanti. Here in Bishkek, for example, we are kind of getting used to being around them and having them here. And the view here, general view, is that, hey, it's uh, Russia's loss, it's our win, uh, they're not that bad, they are you know, integrating, they're not causing us trouble. What about Kazakhstan? I think in the beginning, when there were first few waves of Russian uh, relocanti to Kazakhstan, uh, some Kazakhs were very, let's say, sensitive and protective. They would come and film these Russians and asking, uh, to whom does Crimea belong to or what is your opinion about the war? I know that like my former professor at university also used to ask these questions from uh, Russian uh, migrants and now he's like, and now I just don't care because they will say whatever you want them to say because they're scared, but you never know what they truly think. So now I think people, they just care about their own business as usual. There was Nauris, people were celebrating that, and I don't think they would care much about international or even internal political agenda right now. We just don't talk about it anymore, so it's not really on the agenda as it was before. So, should we switch to the next topic, which is the summit between Putin and Chinese President Xi in Moscow? Here I've seen discussions about this high-level meeting, you know, the general view among people I've talked to and is that uh, it's the show of solidarity, you know, two large Eurasian powers standing together in the face of growing animosity with the Western world. So they are making this huge, strong stand saying, hey, the world is changing, no longer Western dominated, China and Russia stand together, and we need to change the whole architecture of the international order. So here in Central Asia, we're perplexed, you know, when two large countries they are speaking in in one voice it makes us a little bit uneasy and nervous you know we like russia and china you know collaborating together because it means peace but we are afraid that if the, these two large countries will make some deals behind our backs and those deals will affect us somehow we would not want that you know particularly economic deals or political deals uh, we as small countries here in central asia are nervous about, you know, large powers um, making decisions behind our backs. That is very true. We have people in Kazakhstan who are deeply distrusting both Russia and China. And I would say there is still a high level of xenophobia as well. And even though there are a lot of deals in terms of investments and development uh, with uh, China, for example. I know that a lot of people in Kazakhstan are still being very cautious. I don't think it was discussed much in Kazakhstan that Putin and uh, Xi met, but uh, what caught the attention was that there was some statement um, between Putin and Xi that they, um, both Russia and China, will not allow any uh, color revolutions in Central Asia, which kind of um, implies that politically they're still going to use their leverage to prevent the development of certain things, political things in Central Asian countries. And that has been the case before. 
-hmm. but now it's like written in a statement and I think this is uh, important for future to notice uh, what might happen because it, for example in, in Kazakhstan when this January events happened mm -hmm. a lot of people were also pointing out to the fact that Tokayev has called for this uh, collective security treaty and Putin personally to help uh, kind of restore the order so it's it might be the case in the future in case people will rise up and there will be some discontent that some foreign powers might intervene to keep the stability of the regime. I agree. I think that here a lot of Central Asian residents, they view that uh, summit meeting as an important event, but they are far more preoccupied with another issue, and that has to do with Central Asian countries' uh, debts, financial debts to China. Uh, I mean, over the past uh, decades, That debt has accumulated. We've talked about it briefly. Kyrgyzstan, for example, owes uh, almost uh, 40% of its 5 billion external debt to China. Tajikistan's debt is almost 60% of its external debt, which is 3 billion US dollars. And Uzbekistan owes approximately 16% of its external debt to China. And what about Kazakhstan? I, I know that Kazakhstan also owes some significant amount of money to Chinese banks. Yeah, but overall, I think it's around six and five to seven percent. So it's not as big as other Central Asian countries. As you rightly mentioned, actually, in our previous episode, that such countries as China and Russia, they give us these grants or money for development projects without tying it to certain obligations in terms of developing or strengthening our institutions and democratic values and other stuff. So I think, yeah, this is like linking to previous discussion when Blinken visited uh, Central Asia. This is a perfect example now what Central Asia is getting into, having all these debts to China and then now struggling to repay or not knowing how they can repay it, right? Exactly. And the, this issue of repayment is so topical. I mean, it's been hotly discussed here in Kyrgyzstan because This year alone, we have to make like several hundred millions U.S. dollars in debt repayment to China. And this issue was actually discussed at a recent meeting involving Chinese ambassador to Kyrgyzstan, Du Wen, this really feisty woman who intervenes on behalf of Chinese migrants, labor migrants, when they're mistreated by Kyrgyz authorities. So she has this reputation as this strong-willed woman who is not afraid of pointing out to Kyrgyz government and uh, financial circles that, hey, guys, by the way, you owe us billions of dollars, so you better treat our citizens and China more seriously. Journalists asked Ambassador Duane whether China would consider Kyrgyzstan's request to restructure the debt, Kyrgyz debt, because it's hard for us to repay uh, all of that money within the short period. And already the, the terms are that we have to pay now, actually. Ambassador Duane, she said that they will they would consider and they're still considering, but she gave this evasive answer. And that's causing a lot of nervousness here in, in Kyrgyzstan as also in, in Tajikistan, because China is not giving us definitive answer about whether they are willing to restructure our debts, Tajik, Kyrgyz, Uzbek debts to China. You know, I've been recently reading one interesting article. It's academic paper 
written by Nargis Kasyanova. She is currently a senior fellow and director of the program in Central Asia in Harvard University. And oh, I know her, yeah. Yeah, she's also a, a teacher at Kimap University, where I studied. So as this paper that she wrote about China's uh, foreign aid to Central Asia, it argues that uh, right now China is building so many relationships with different countries like Latin America, Central Asia, uh, Middle East, African countries. And in each of these countries, they try to adapt and be flexible according to local, uh, let's say, traditions and um, customs. Mm -hmm. And in Central Asia, for example, there is this peculiarity that China is using this technique of gift giving, which is close to our culture's in order to build these personal relationships with political elites. China has been a predictable security partner. It never invaded uh, Central Asia over the past 30 or, or more years. But financially, all those cheap loans, for better or for worse, they've uh, made us so indebted to China, and, and it's not clear what China is planning to do with that debt. The thing is, uh, the Taliban's arrival into power caused so much confusion, dismay, and uh, anxiety in, here in Central Asia. We're still struggling over how to deal with them. So uh, Tashkent and Dushanbe, they found themselves in this disagreement over how to deal with the Taliban. You know, Tajik government has been livid over the way the Taliban treated ethnic Tajik minority they essentially crowded them out from government, from uh, financial sector. So a lot of ethnic Tajiks in Afghanistan, they fled the country. And Tajikistan is blaming the Taliban of security threats, of uh, abetting terrorism, all kinds of problems like drugs. In neighboring Uzbekistan, Mirziyoyev's government is trying to improve relations between the Taliban and the Central Asian countries. And Uzbekistan also has ambitions to be like the Taliban's uh, mediators to help them reintegrate into the world stage. And Dushanbe doesn't like that approach by Tashkent. The issue of Taliban is causing discord, I agree, here in Central Asia. And what about Kazakhstan? How does it view the Taliban and the threats emanating from them? You know, uh, Kazakhstan does not border with Afghanistan, so yeah. all this news about Afghanistan, they seem like very distant and another country that might not necessarily concern us. And in Kazakhstan, there is mostly discussion about some form of humanitarian aid to Afghanistan. There are a lot of education projects with European Union, UN, I think, in which uh, some Afghan people come to study in Kazakhstan, and now especially women, because uh, Taliban has banned women from mm -hmm. uh, getting any education. So in these terms, yeah, Kazakhstan is trying to help um, Afghan citizens. But in terms of like threats, we don't really think about it. Let's say we have the privilege to not think about it. But I think the threats can be very real as well to Central Asia, because Taliban is also kind of um, not really predictable player and you never know what to expect from them. And actually, there has been recently news on Eurasianet. If you want to read more, you can go to the website in which uh, there was a discussion about the 
fraud canal project uh, in which Uzbekistan is trying to deal with Taliban government and trying to persuade them not to build this um, canal because it might divert wa- water from the dying Amudarya River. If you read the article, it's very hard to, to see how this is going to end because Taliban says that it will finish this project at any cost and Uzbekistan mm. is kind of at disadvantage if they do that. I also wanted to add that another irritant in the relations between Kabul, dominated by the Taliban, and Tashkent is the fate of uh, NATO airplanes that were flown into the Uzbek territory by these uh, fleeing Afghani pilots. You know, when the Taliban took control in, in Kabul, those pilots, which were trained by NATO forces to fly NATO planes, which were left behind, they flew those planes into the Uzbek territory, uh, like and they and they landed in, on Uzbek territory and they sought asylum. So there are about twenty or more NATO planes uh, belonging to Afghanistan that are on Uzbek territory still. They are stored in Termez Airport, from what I gathered. And the Taliban, they've been demanding that Uzbekistan return those planes to, Talib, to the Taliban because it belongs to Afghanistan. They're saying. But Uzbek authorities, they're saying, no, no, you know, like, they're not ready to give those planes to the Taliban. And the Western countries don't want them to do that. So Uzbekistan and the Taliban are at loggerheads over the fate of these planes. The thing is, Tashkent has been trying to really improve the relations uh, between the Taliban and the Western countries because it's... it. Uzbekistan has a stake, uh, a financial stake in, in this improvement of the relations. But there are some irritants, strains in the relations. Spring is coming. It was Nowruz, or how do you say it in Kyrgyzstan? Nowruz, right? Yes, that's right, um, Nowruz. And it's been uh, traditionally a very... For me, a very nice time with the family. We have officially four days off, I think, or three days off. And um, it's like a time for celebration of spring. But with spring comes the usual problem. Uh, snow melts. In Kazakhstan, for example, there is a problem with flooding and um, other stuff. But in Kyrgyzstan, there is specific problem that I'm curious to know more about. It's related to uranium that comes from Soviet time, right? Can you tell us more about it, Akshar? Of course, I agree. I was recently in Karabalta, and Karabalta is infamous for being located in proximity to Soviet-era uranium disposal site. Uh, the Soviet authorities had this large uranium industry in Central Asia, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan. So they explored and extracted uranium in Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. And then to enrich it, they took it to Kazakhstan. And then they created these bombs, uh, which they tested on the Kazakh territory. So all those kind of uh, explorations and extraction activities in Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan ended in the 80s. And the authorities... uh, created disposal sites where they buried uh, used uranium or unused uh, radioactive parts and whatever. So there are several disposal sites in Kyrgyzstan's Jalalabad as well as Chui provinces and in Tajikistan's Sukht province. 
So during my recent visit to Karabalta disposal site, uh, I, I was shocked. Weather is warm and the disposal site is being used by local residents for various purposes. They are using it as a pasture land to feed their domestic animals, which produce milk, you know, radioactive milk, I guess. And then there are these uh, youngsters. They play soccer very much close to the uh, waste disposal sites. And there are these young people who are using the exact location of uranium burial sites as a place for meetings and gatherings, romantic gatherings. It's crazy. I mean, the authorities are ignoring all those threats. There are no signs saying that these are radioactive areas. And locals, when I talked to them, they said, hey, we just don't believe all that uh, information. But do they not see the consequences of living in this place? Like, were they not born, uh, I don't know, children with disabilities and some other diseases? I think there are some fears, but I guess uh, locals are so much used to just living close to those sites and they don't believe really uh, all those official warnings about radioactive threats. Uh, they don't take them seriously. And over the past several years, scientists have been conducting these tests on level of radioactivity. And even scientists, they are in disagreement over whether those disposal sites present serious or not so serious threat. What is clear, though, is that with the spring comes the risk of landsliding, avalanches. And in Jalalabad's Bailisu area, one of the uh, uranium disposal sites, the landslides, they are presenting a really serious risk because they can affect the, the landfill. Also, there is this risk of flooding. You know, if flooding affects the landfill where radioactive material is buried, then it's going to go into water. It's going to contaminate the whole area, and we may end up with huge humanitarian crisis. So authorities are talking about this threat, but they're not taking any serious measures, and that's causing a lot of concern among you know expert community here in Bishkek. That is a crazy story, and you told us there are these cows and other animals I just don't feel like buying milk from Kyrgyzstan anymore. Please don't. Don't buy milk. Don't buy meat. And don't don't talk to people from Jalalabad and Chui province because they're all, uh, I guess, uh, I'm joking. But still, I think that we're taking this, these risks lightly here in Chui and Jalalabad provinces. Yeah, that is very true. And... People, I guess, they don't realize the seriousness because they don't see it. It's invisible. You know, this radioactive thing is, is, is very personal for me because in Kazakhstan, during Soviet times, there were about 500 nuclear tests in eastern part of Kazakhstan, oh this May yeah. uh, area. And this uh -huh. is the area where my father is from and my father's relatives and, um, in this area, there are still people living with disabilities, still being born with all these um, really horrible consequences of what happened during Soviet times. I really think that authorities should should take it seriously and have a stronger political will to protect people from this invisible threat. I fully agree with you. This has been Eurasia Chat Podcast with your hosts, Igerim and Alisher. 
Thanks for listening and tune in to our next episode in two weeks. Goodbye.